Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. It's the podcast of the Critically Acclaimed Network where you control the conversation. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting, and uh, wouldn't you know it, everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibel, and before we get started, we have to stop the show to uh, remind you that our pledge drive is going on right now. Uh, if you pledge $150 or more, we're going to give you a free tote bag that says Public Radio on it, and uh, you can tote things in that tote bag. Totes. Uh, totes my goats. And if you pledge more than $650 million, we'll put you in the drawing for one tire of a Tesla. Uh, <laughs> None of those things are true. No, no, that's just me making fun of actually, public, public radio pledge drive. Actually, I'll stop you right there. If you give us $650 million, we will give you one tire of a Tesla. Or we'll give you three Teslas. No. <laughs> $650 million? I don't know how much they cost. We'll give a little... <laughs> Is it a lot? Okay, what if they're a million apiece? Okay, yeah. Then we're, we'll give you <laughs> we're down to $647 million. Oh, no. I can't think of anything I'd want to do with that. <laughs> Give you a friggin' fleet of Teslas for that. Anyway, this is the podcast where uh, you send us your emails and we read them a lot on air. We answer your questions. We give recommendations. We respond to your criticisms. Mm. Um, basically, the time is yours. And you can talk about something topical. You can talk about just pure nonsense if you want. Um, we, we try to read as much as we can. We can't read everything, but we do our best. If you want to email us, the email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. I love .net. Yeah. .net is like off to the side where the cool kids .net sit. .net is the new hotmail. <laughs> Wait a minute, I still have the old hotmail. <laughs> I know you do. Um, hot, hot, if you still have a hotmail account like me, you're one of the cool kids. Yeah, hang on to that. I, I started to get more valuable with age. Yeah, well, I uh, got my first email address when I got went away to college because mm. I didn't have a computer with uh, internet access in the mid-90s. Yeah. Those were, uh, to to my class, a bit of a rarity. And a bit of a, a bit of luxury for people who had a little bit more money than we did. So I went away to college. Finally got my very first email address. It was wsibel at ups.edu because I went to the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington. And uh, I was encouraged to also set up a personal email address because mm. I don't know if there was something suspect about the school email address. But I guess they said it's not permanent because, uh, you know, they're going to erase it once you graduate. It's, well, that's four years. I got plenty of time to think about it. But OK, so I set up. My email address, which mm. I'm, I'm not going to give out here, but you can figure it out. Right. Um, on Hotmail.com, which was a brand new thing at the time. Right. I looked it up on Lycos, and uh, I just kept using that. Mm. And I used it professionally, and I just have been chugging away with it ever since. I set up a Gmail account, and that's easy to figure out. But uh, my Hotmail still lives. Hotmail died. And yet, the companies that bought it allowed it to live on. Thank you. So they didn't make me change my email address. I can keep my old Hotmail address, and I think I will be able to forever because of these weird grandfather clauses. There will be eventually come a day so, where people will find out you have a Hotmail address, and they'll go, ooh, well, they'll, yeah, how like, sexy. How's, yeah. How did you do that? Or like they'll, they'll come to me at 83, and the one notable newsworthy thing I'm ever going to do is, then this guy still has the same Hotmail address that he's been using for 83 <laughs> years. <laughs> And I'll tell the same story, and no one will be interested. It's gonna be, but by that time, it's gonna be like one of you know they have those show, those uh, clips on the news. Yeah, where, like kids don't know what vinyl records are, and it just shows like kids looking at vinyl records, mm. or uh, you know, this, youths react to yeah, 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 like youths react to cartridge video games. What? How do you do it? And uh, 
Yeah, it's going to be like that. You have, this guy has a hotmail address. What? You don't psychically project your anger directly into the frontal lobe of strangers? <laughs> well, I do. It's, it's but... like a baby's toy. <laughs> so, yes, I still have my hotmail address. If you have a hotmail address, I'd love to hear from you via, right. via Twitter or a different email address. All right, moving on. But uh, why don't we read some letters? But, but uh, that's why we're here. Here's a letter from Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Hello, Thomas. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, based on several references you've both made in past podcasts, it seems like you are fans of Mystery Science Theater 3000 like myself. Uh, huge fans. Mm-hmm. It's a formative experience for me. Oh, indeed. Yeah. It really helped solidify not only my sense of humor, but also my love of old and cult films. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, recently, a tweet went viral that made mm. me contemplate my love for the show. Below is a screenshot of said tweet for reference. This is uh, and a screenshot from Twitter. Uh-huh. The tweet is, MST3K was bad for movies and movie watching. Yeah, I heard it that. It set up an entire generation of audiences and their progeny to position themselves above and condescend down to certain types of movies that didn't fit their idea of good as opposed to genuinely engaging with their idiosyncrasies. Uh, at first, I wanted to dismiss this outright to say that MST3K is, is great and that the user is just throwing out a bad take, yet I can't shake off the fact that there might be some merit to this. I started falling in love with MST3K right around the time I started using the internet regularly. Over the years, I can't help but see some of the toxic influence that MST3K has likely unintentionally spread into the modern film discourse, in which every movie that tries something new and weird is inherently bad and worth mocking outright, uh, whether with friends who aren't in the mood even or even loudly in a crowded theater. Uh... Where the cute barbs and references Joel, Mike, Jonah, and the bots made were warped into lazy criticisms you see in aggressively snarkily written reviews, unwatchable angry YouTube videos, or just plain nasty tweets. Uh, do you fellow fans feel that MST3K has contributed to this modern plague of film discourse, or is, a suge- or is the suggestion overblown? I think it's part of a tapestry. Says Thomas. Um, yeah, I think that's part of a tapestry. Um, I think... With any sort of significant cultural institution, there's good that comes with the bad and bad mm. that comes with the good. Hopefully, the good outweighs the bad. Mm. Sometimes, over time, we find well, out otherwise. Um, one case, an example, I feel, find myself having almost completely turned on, in retrospect, is South Park. Mm. Which, in some respects, has a lot of very funny episodes, a lot of mm. very uh, witty, well-structured jokes. And, often and, very fan- And some cultural critique as well. And some cultural critique. Uh, but what I've discovered over time is that... The pervasive absorption of South Park's ethos mm-hmm. has, I think, contributed to the idea that people who take things seriously are the only people who have a real problem. Well, I think, when, that's, uh, the, I think that's what South Park was ultimately shoving down our throats in aggregate. Yeah, when, And uh, I think that's something that really... I'm kind of mad at the show for that. And I think like, that's... you care about global warming. You're the problem yeah. for caring too much. And they, and they use the, the F word with the Gs in it. Um, yeah. The... Uh, Early, I think that was a, also a, a symptom of the creators of the show changing a little bit. Mm. Um, Matt Stone and Trey Parker created South Park. Uh, they grew up a little bit. They started that show when they were pretty young. Oh, yeah. They, were, they were shortly out of college. Yeah, and they, they, they were, made they like were, one film. You and, know? and you look at those early episodes, they're really rudimentally, rudimentally animated. Mm-hmm. Um, that was part of the charm. The, originally. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, it was supposed to be about sort of the, these crass things are coming out of the mouths of essentially these really simple cardboard cutouts. Mm-hmm. And... If you watch some of the early episodes of South Park to address South Park directly, you can tell that it did kind of have a point of view, that it was actually uh, kind of sticking it to a lot of things about celebrity culture, and uh, but also like sort of podunk culture. It was trying to make fun of uh, like censors, uh, but it actually did sort of stick it to particular 
targets. It stuck to mm-hmm. like a, a certain kinds of people who were in power and were meeting out injustice in some sort of way. At least as far uh, as the creators of South Park were concerned. Exactly. Yeah. Um, sometime in the early 2000s, it might have been around 2001, uh, might have been around 9-11 specifically, mm-hmm. uh, South Park kind of dis- started to skew way more nihilistic. Mm. And they started taking pot shots at just about everybody. Um I remember when Team America World Police, a film from the same creators, came yeah. out, uh, Roger Ebert said that he couldn't get behind the crass humor because it's taking shots so widely that it fails to have a point of view. And that's actually and, uh, not an unfair criticism that's, of that yeah. movie. I, I, I think there are things to defend in, in Team America. There's a lot it's, of things I like about that film. Then there's a lot of individual it, episodes yeah, of the, South Park that exactly. I would defend even, even more as recent, just being yeah. really well yeah, made. Even more recent ones. But, but again, my argument is that I when think, you like download mm. that whole like post-9-11 aspect of South Park, mm. where it feels like their principal target in every episode, regardless of what the actual issue was... Mm was always anyone who treated it like a big deal. Any anyone who was trying to be any form of an activist. Yeah. Whether really. they were an activist for conservative causes or liberal causes or something mm. more neutral, caring yeah, was they, the problem. Like for example, the episode uh where I think it was Stan refused to vote for a school election over their new mascot because both one of their mascots was a turd sandwich and oh, the yeah, other one was a giant like, douche. Yeah, yeah. Which and the whole point was Frankly, the whole point of the episode was, well, was voting is sense. voting is stupid because yeah. everyone is flawed. Mm. And I'm like, that doesn't make voting stupid, and mm. we probably shouldn't be promoting. That's not a wise ethos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, you're not clever for espousing that. You're actually mm. kind of undermining well, and, and if, any if, faith in a system that is supposed to be designed to help us. If it the, if there was like a, a, an outsider running against the turd sandwich and the douche, and that guy ended up being elected, there would be a point to that episode. Yeah. But yeah, the, See what the, I mean? the, the, like, the joke the, didn't go any further yeah. than that. Um, as for MST3K, I think it actually teaches kids criticism in a very vital way. Mm. Uh, I think it's a great way to it taught it teaches you how to enjoy bad cinema. I would say mm. not not necessarily deride it. I don't think it, it, there's a, a much of a caustic attitude to mystery science theater. In fact, I find it a very excessively polite show. Well, um, I think there are different levels. I think different yeah. versions of the show had different attitudes. I, I suppose I think so. The, and the Joel, different hosts d- brought different things to it. If but, you look um, at the uh, the Joel years, mm-hmm. the original like five. Five, six seasons of uh, South, uh, South Park, yeah. Mr. Mr. Science yeah. Theater. Um, you'll see that Joel had this sort of children's show host quality where the bots were the kids. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the interstitial segments, like between bits of the film, were about teaching you about movie stuff or like mm-hmm. themes in the film. And that's where Still I learned done. about stuff like Foley and, <laughs> and you know, uh, Mats, yeah. like all these elements of films. Mm-hmm. So it was actually like vaguely educational. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciated that. I think when well, the Mike years abandoned that and it just kind of became about just watching a bad movie every week. Yeah, and, but and I think while, Jonah brought it back. Though. While they're watching the movie, though, they're kind of criticizing weird camera angles, mm. uh, weird character choices, bad pieces of dialogue. Mm. They're calling attention with humor uh-huh. to flaws in a film while giving you this ability to laugh at but also kind of with this film well, think- because they're actually deriving a lot of pleasure from doing it and making a lot of jokes and it, it, it is fodder for humor mm-hmm. but only when they're like sit, sitting down in front of a real turkey yeah did they, they reserve it yeah they, they reserved it. the big guns i will say um, that uh, um I, I think another thing that i picked up on when i was young and i don't think i could have articulated it at the time uh-huh but another thing that MST3K taught me was that we do not watch films in a vacuum and that we bring with it our own 
thought processes. It's in viewing films as an active experience. It doesn't yeah, necessarily need yeah, to be an interactive an experience. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily need to talk to the screen. But in our heads, we're constantly thinking about what we're seeing. And oftentimes, we're relating it to other things that we've seen. A lot of MST3K mm. jokes or are... references to other things. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that Look, these... they're, they're being kidnapped by members of the split ends. Yeah, yeah. so these everything exists in like this vast cultural landscape mm. that is densely populated with other things and there's a lot of stuff from MST3K that they reference that I'm still learning about now like <laughs> once in a while I'll run into something and I'll finally understand an MST3K joke <laughs> it's incredible it's really really I think I think uh, we were watching um, I think Captain's Courageous and there was some joke in Captain's Courageous that I mm. was from MST3K and I never got it and I yeah, finally yeah. saw Captain's Courageous and I'm like ah I understand it now <laughs> so I think that's all good. I think the issue, though, and I think it's a well, fair issue, is yeah. that not everyone takes away the same thing from art. And I do believe that there are some people mm. who took away from MST3K that it's okay to talk back to the screen if you don't respect the film. Well, and there's that. And if, if you go to see, like, a midnight movie, uh, and I got this a lot, people would get drunk, go to midnight movies. I love going to midnight mm-hmm. movies. And, yeah, they would just sort of riff in their drunken fashion. And you know what? I if I'm in a midnight movie of some like cult film and there's some people drunk and they're making sort of a disturbance in the theater, I'm kind of fine with that. That's kind of the environment uh, where you expect. Yeah, like there's a few places where you can be kind of rowdy in a theater, a late night genre film, especially at midnight, especially of like a well established cult classic. It's okay to be a little bit rowdy there. I, I was raised among a mystery or not mystery, uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, where which is the rowdiest. So mm. yo, know, I, I never actually went to a screening of The Room, but I understand it was even more rowdy. Like, people are just sort of screaming and doing well, those and, things. And you actually brought and, uh, up a, a, a good point, which is that the tradition of interactivity mm. with cinema like that goes way beyond MST3K. Like, MST3K didn't invent that. Mm. Rocky Horror didn't even invent that. In fact, I think it's been argued that the first sort of running commentary on a film gag was from mm. one of the Bob Hope Road movies where Robert Benchley did, like, a whole segment oh, okay, like yeah. that. I actually don't remember which one offhand. Mm. I don't think I've seen it. Um but but even like late night hosts would like Elvira would like in the middle of a mm. film and take Elvi- the piss out of the movie. Well, and El- Elvira Vampira before her, Elvira yeah. kind of like cribbed the shtick. Well, but, I, um, I picked Elvira because she mm. was well known. And when MST3K first started, it was on public access, so it was in the tradition of those sort yeah. of local these, TV hosts. These were and, movies that you know the the studio had bought and mm. bought real cheap or were in public domain, and they were just like instead of doing the comedy bits in between segments, just do it over the whole thing. Mm. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. the whole gag. It, it's just a natural extension of what had already occurred. So I, I, I think what uh, this this tweet that you're referencing uh, refers to what is a phenomenon of uh, essentially what can be called the cranky critic. Yeah. Uh, uh, which when I when I first discovered him in like the late '90s, uh, I was actually very fond of an online critic who only went by Mr. Cranky. Mm. Uh, there were no photos. Mr. Cranky was just a little uh, little picture and uh, wrote film reviews of all the new re- releases. But the joke was they were always negative, and it was yeah. always nitpicking something, and it was rated on a scale of bombs. And but it was, was clearly a gag. It was clearly a gag, and I always saw that as a, kind of a fun way to talk about movies, acknowledge their flaws, but also kind of satirize. Uh, the form of film criticism trying to be as negative as possible because all of these reviews are going to be negative. The best possible review still got one bomb. Um, and you can see that kind of extending into sort of a lot of modern day YouTube critics. A lot of people have accused cinema sins, for instance, of being incredibly negative toward films. Uh, 
I didn't realize people viewed CinemaSins that way. I also saw CinemaSins as a bit of a satire. It was sort of there's there's a way of talking about films, especially when you're just figuring out film discourse that encourages uh, a certain kind of nitpicking and a certain kind of judgmental uh, attitude about those nitpicks that sort of turn your criticism into. Uh, essentially a shtick. Yeah. Here's my uh, thing it, with CinemaSins. Here's my thing with CinemaSins. I'm just yeah. going to say this right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's another one I, f- I feel a little bit like I do about South Park. An mm-hmm. individual episode is fine. Yeah. When you absorb it a lot in an aggregate and you start sort of absorbing that ethos of how to watch films, mm-hmm. it doesn't ever take you beyond that. Yeah. It never takes you to the exceptions of those rules. It never really expands on that. It keeps you at kind of this one stage of criticism where you start noticing details, mm. but you're not supposed to stop there. You're supposed to then take those details that you've noticed and consider each one of them contextually. What, mm. Was there a distinct decision made yeah. for why that's in the film? Maybe that does more good than harm. Yeah. Well, like, and again, it stops somewhere. It, and the, the, the problem here is you have a, a generation of people, and this is usually, and I don't mean to pick on people in their 20s, but I, I know it well because I was in my 20s and I did this. Uh, you can mistake shtick for a point of view uh, or sure. a joke for a criticism. Um, another one that, that's uh, a pretty prime, quote, offender of this is uh, Doug Walker, the nostalgia critic. Right. He, he goes into the 90s or his own childhood. He finds films that are already widely accepted as bad or that and that also he has accepted as bad watches them, points out all of the flaws, and just sort of whines about it. Ah, oh, that's awful, oh, that's awful. And that can be very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a very good comedian, but I don't think he's a good critic, uh, because mm-hmm. he's not actually bothering to analyze very deeply these things. He's just yeah. sort of giving an immediate reaction, and he's very successful. He's still successful. Uh, uh, there's been a fair amount of controversy he, about he's, him. He's, but he mismanaged his don't. company completely, but... Um, but he's still doing his shit. Again, my and, point and is this. But it, that's what it is. It's shtick. It's jokes. I also think that that's the thing. Mm. MST3K never claimed they were critics. Right. Cinema Sins, by pointing out flaws in movies and cataloging them in mm. a way that like people who get really OCD about uh, media, mm. they're coming across as critics and they're functionally critics. Uh-huh. All right. The nostalgia critic literally calls himself a critic. MST3K never called themselves a critic. No. These are people who are just watching movies and they have no control over what they are. And if mm. they're not enjoying them, they talk back to the screen. And that's that. Yeah. It's a different thing. Now, again, some people take away lessons from things that were not intended mm-hmm. or that are unfortunate. And I think that's an opportunity to have a discourse about this and try to educate people and remind people that there is actually a lot of positive things we can take from mst 3 k But I'm going to say it right now. I, I, I saw that and I had a bit of a soul surge and I thought to myself, there is a downside in trying to promote interactivity with cinema. But mm. I thoroughly promote active cinema viewing. And I think mm. mst 3 k taught me that. Yeah. And I actually think, in a way, they kind of taught me how to respect those movies as well by engaging with them instead of rolling my eyes and turning them off. Yeah. Like, yeah. stick with them. There's stuff in there that is actually well, also, of interest and the comment- can be entertaining. The, the commentary is makes the film much more in- in- interesting to watch. Oh, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I'd be able to get through something like Robot Monster if I were just up late trying to watch it. I tried to watch Santa Claus Conquers the Martians without the MST3K mm. track once. I couldn't do it. <laughs> like, you're not paying it's attention after really a while. Bad. Yeah. Like, it's really mm. bad. It's really bad. All right, listen, I, I think hopefully we've addressed your issue. I, I admit it's complicated, uh-huh. and sometimes we do need to reevaluate things that we love and that were uh, really formative for us, mm. and that maybe they don't have necessarily the best legacy. 
I think MST3K is a somewhat complicated legacy, but in my estimation, mm-hmm. and maybe a part of this is just my own personal experience, I think it did more good than harm. Mm-hmm. But I also see the argument of that. I think it's a conversation we'd have, but I do not like it when people just say, ah, they don't respect the movies, because they taught me how to respect movies. Yeah. So I don't think it's cut and dry. And uh, we actually got to interview Joel Hodgson once. Oh my god, and, that was uh, one of my favorite days of my life. Not only did we get to interview him, we had to give him a ride after that. <laughs> yeah, like, his, crap his, car, it's full yeah, of junk. He sort of gets in there, he got our car, we gave him a ride yeah. across town. Um, so yeah, he rode in our car. <laughs> was or, well, nice. your car, and I was, was in the backseat. He was but, a very um, nice guy. Um, yeah, and we actually, and we we wanted to come at him for a second because one of the films that uh, this was about the return of Mystery Science. Theater, yeah, the first um, season on Netflix. And one of the films they had done was Star Crash, a, a, a really goofy Star Wars knockoff that you and I are kind of fond of. Yeah, I mean, and, it's, it's, and I we were fond of before it was on Mystery yeah, Science Theater. We I, knew about that movie. I, I own that movie. Like, yeah. I wouldn't call it great, but I find it very entertaining it's on it. its own it's merits. It's a very entertaining film, and. And we said, so, you know, what would you say to, you know, somebody who says, I think Star, because we both think of this, well, yeah. we think Star Crash is actually a pretty good movie. And he just sort of looked us in the eye and said, would you really say that? <laughs> is it really that good? I mean, clearly he has kind of a, a little bit of a dismissive view toward a lot of these because he's well, looking for bad movies that are bad in a way that can be mocked. So there It's is, also fair to say that it is a matter of taste. It's a matter of taste. D- but Danger Diabolic was on MST3K, for God's sake. We, I love that movie. I think it was I, a classic. I think the notion that you need to respect every piece of art that falls in front of your eyes, considering that there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of movies out there, is a little bit of a fallacy. It is okay to dismiss something. I think it's okay to dismiss it after you've seen it. Yeah. It's okay to dismiss it after you've seen it and after you gave it a fair shake. That, I think, is respecting the movie. Yeah. That's for me. Anyway. And even those movies that that the the makers of MSTK roll their eyes at and would happily dismiss, they're still presenting them. Yeah. yeah. Mono's The Hands of Fate. No one would know about that movie (laughs) if it wasn't MST3K. Uh That would not be a thing. It's, it now has the reputation of one of the worst movies ever time. But people watch made, it. But people know it. Yeah. People watch it. I've seen people cosplay as Torgo at Comic Book Avengers. we got to move on. It's been yeah. a very long conversation. Right. Um, here's a letter from James. Hello, James. Hi, James. Uh, dear Messrs. Seibold and Bibiani, in your most recent letters episode, you talked about Monsters, Inc. and how the ending teaches a valuable lesson about pursuing what you're good at. Oh, it was Monsters. You we were speaking, talking about Monsters University. University but yes, yeah. yes, fair enough. Uh, I cannot share your optimism as I think this movie has one of the darkest endings in cinema history. Interesting. Okay. Oh, and he's talking about specifically Monsters Incorporated. Ah, okay. Um, starting a chain of events that will lead to the destruction of society <laughs> and the enslavement of humanity. At the end of the movie, Mike and Sully discover that children's laughter, the spoilers for Monsters, Inc., uh, is ten times more powerful than screams. The premise of the movie is children scream so they can charge batteries. Children's, uh, yeah. children's screams magically turns into monster electricity. Um, weird premise to be yeah, Okay. The discovery is then put into place at the energy company our heroes work for. On the surface, that seems fine, until you consider everything we learn about their world from both the original and the prequel. Monsters Incorporated is a private company. True. At least two other companies, Hearco and Scream Industries, are mentioned, all seem to employ scarers, so we can presume that they are all in the energy sector. But now one company has the ability to generate much more energy, a competitive advantage that would allow them to undercut all other energy firms until they are the only one left. Not only will this cause mass unemployment, but these mm. firms are almost completely public, uh, publicly floated companies. The loss of two huge companies would have a devastating impact on investors, not just uh, the wealthy, but also regu- regular people's pension funds. A long, deep economic depression is inevitable. The effects on the workforce are even more devastating than simple mass unemployment. Even at Monsters, Inc., a large number of the existing workforce are unsuited to the new roles. And as we know from Monsters University, higher education is vocational. 
without the broad skills that graduate studies usually <laughs> cover. These monsters now without work or the ability to get new jobs in a collapsing economy. Mike better enjoy his new car while he can. <laughs> Because once word gets out that he and Sully are responsible, they'll likely be strung up in the street like Mussolini. (laughs) Furthermore, if you think about it, the biggest mystery in both movies is why physically stronger monsters with portal technology that allows them to appear at any place in the world aren't already dominant over us. But because they think we're because they think we'll kill them. That's true. They, they're afraid that's, of us. They think we're diseased. Yeah, that's yeah. of course. Now that we know that that's yeah. not true, it does raise yeah. the question. But now that that's the case, and we know the laughter, they probably yeah. just come in and put on vaudeville shows. <laughs> or well, well, why do that? Why just why not just bust through the door and kill people and take over the world? Because they're not with, assholes. With, with they're monsters. They're literal they're, monsters. But that doesn't make them bad people. <laughs> they're literal monsters. But that doesn't make them bad people. It's the whole point of the movie. They got fangs and claws, and they spit Only acid like and stuff. Only two of them were bad people. Uh, That's a good percentage. Mm. I posit it's only because they're only scary enough, if unfamiliar, so their previous power generation process required them to be mysterious. Well, that's but true. if they ever discover that we humans laughed when tickled, they'll have <laughs> enslaved us in battery pods quicker than Matrix robots. <laughs> We're one feather and bare feet away from the apocalypse. At least that's my theory, although I concede it's unlikely the forthcoming Disney Plus show Monsters at Work will cover this. James from London. Um, Is that a real thing? They're making a Monsters at Work show? I, I guess so. That sounds um, fun. Um, okay. I love most movies. <laughs> I, I, I like Monsters You better than Monsters Inc. I'm kind of alone at that. But, uh, I, I find I like them both equally. Okay. Um, okay. So you're right. All of the scarers would be put out of work, and uh, the energy sector would be completely effed by this new revelation, this new way of generating much more power, much more cheaply. Yeah. Um, much less labor. Yeah. First of all. Uh, I think you underestimate the corruption in the energy sector. I think uh, once this sort of thing would be, uh, it would be discovered by corporate spies, no doubt, and it would be suppressed. I think uh, the grim ending here is that Mike and Sully would actually be imprisoned in a in a dungeon somewhere, yeah, or just merely executed. Yeah, in order to prevent this information this, this from, secret getting, from out getting out, and and the whole notion of planned obsolescence, like uh, like the internal combustion engine, would just keep perpetuating itself. Capitalism. Listen, I don't mean to make this the whole thing, but mm-hmm. like, if judging from a fictional perspective. Capitalism stands in the way of every utopian ideal we've ever had in fiction. <laughs> when you think about it, like you, you look at Star Trek mm-hmm. and the how, like you know, like you know, Picard has that bit about it. We don't use money. We quite better, better ourselves. ourselves. Yeah, yeah the capitalist overlords are not going to be too happy about that, and they will fight tooth and nail to prevent that from becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the well, idea- in, in the future of Star Trek. Uh, they only discover that utopia after the essentially the world economy has been completely wiped out. Yeah, like there aren't any millionaires well, yeah, left. But that's to my plane. But see, that's my point. Yeah. When the the whole like massive change in society that we would want from something like free clean energy or mm. radically inexpensive energy and that would completely change the world economy, mm. we want it to change the world economy. There will be a transition where a lot of people are put out by that. Mm. But in the end, what do we have? A lot of people who aren't dying. Yeah. Well, so that so we we're so terrified of that transitional period. Mm. That we fight tooth and nail to prevent actual positive change from well, actually occurring. Much like, the, the you know, po- the, the positive cars change trying occur, to like, destroy but, the know, solar car, the feet are trying to destroy the solar car, that kind of thing. But, you know, now we're coming around to electric cars yeah. thanks to people like Elon Musk, and I think because he made it sexy and stylish. He, he, style he, he found thing, a way yeah. to make it a capitalist yeah. enterprise. Yeah. So um, the change happens is just glacial. It moves very, very, very right. slowly. Um, another thing in Monsters Incorporated is. It's actually a secret within the company that laughter creates more energy than scares. I mean, they, we never know that for a fact. 
Like in the last scene, it's is it just Mike and Sully who are making kids laugh? No, or other was, monsters no, no all the well. other monsters are like talking about how this is so much more fun than before, and they're putting on like groucho oh, glasses. Yeah, you're right, so like you're right, the company, yeah. the company as well, the company knows that. I don't remember if everyone else does, mm. but I also think it would be fine. Like I think everyone would. Yeah, well, the, the the scary monsters would be out of work, and as as uh, as James pointed out, they're only vocationally trained, so they would be ill prepared to enter an open marketplace in the monster world. True. Um, unless there's some other job that lets them be scary, but here's, like but, a bouncer or something. And, and I'll grant you that. And mm. so that we would need programs, like re-education programs, to like mm. give people, you know, oh, I'm sorry, listen, your job is now considered mm. obsolete. That really sucks. So we're going to like well, have always, this like government yeah. program that'll teach you like, you know, data entry or like how to do other jobs. Like, what are you good at? Like, we can find well, other jobs. There have I, to be. Maybe Monsters U was something like, it was like Caltech, which is a technical college. Yeah. I think Monsters U was a technical college. It was a vocational college. There's no nothing in the Monsters movies that precludes the existence of a no. monster community college Monsters or a Monsters U was not a vocational art college. school. Monsters U was not a vocational college. Scaring was one track. It okay. wasn't like it wasn't like you you're not going to be a good scare. You're kicked out of college. It's mm. like you can't have this major. Okay. So there are, they they don't go into a lot of detail, but there are other things. Like there's even um, at one bit when um, um, Mike mm. uh, has like he, he might go on a different track and he's on like this really boring like mm. how to repair scare oh, doors yeah, yeah, or yeah, like yeah. that. It's, it's like why and the and the teacher like is how, just, how doors work. Yeah. yeah. Well, the professor is just like so. Why would you go into scare door? Repair. Yeah. A lot of people ask me, why would you go into scare door repair when it's the most boring job in the world? Lesson Open one. your page. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story. A lot of people ask me. Yeah. Um, look, it's, there's going to be a huge transitional mm-hmm. field in anything when there's any kind of new major development. Sometimes that's good. Uh-huh. Can you imagine, like, I'm trying to think of, like, when we, like, when we, when we, like, illegalized heroin. Uh-huh. A lot of people and like really lost their jobs selling heroin. <laughs> I'm not. I don't think we should have fought for the. I mean, granted, there's a lot of problems with the mm. illegal and, and slash legal drug market. Mm. There's a line somewhere, and some people were crossing mm. it, and I think it's okay to say those people need to find new jobs. There, I, so, like, when there's like just this completely obsolete, it's like eventually well, we need to you, wean ourselves off of oil. A lot of people are in the oil industry right now; they will need to find new jobs. Let's just do it now. Yeah, well, and, do it and faster. It's like we, we are weaning ourselves off of coal because a it's dangerous, b it's inefficient, c it's yeah. dangerous, e it's dangerous. Um, yeah, it, it's just like a really inefficient way to generate power and. Now we have an administration that says, no, let's go back to that. We're going to double down on it because a lot of people really don't want to learn a new job. Yeah, m- n- never mind that automation was the thing that was taking their jobs. Yeah. Not, and also the, the industry was shrinking and we were trying to wean ourselves. Anyway. Yeah, anyway, uh, now I'm just complaining about politics. Yeah. Um, it's, but my point is, is this. Once you start injecting reality into fiction, uh, you start having a lot of fun. And it gets read really great emails like the one you send us. And I don't mean to decry <laughs> this. This is a great no, email. I love that you thought this one mm-hmm. out. But there just comes a time. When you just have to say to yourself, and it's fine. <laughs> That's why we have the phrase, suspension of disbelief. Suspend yeah. your disbelief for a minute. Yeah. And take the film on its own terms, and you won't be thinking about something But like I that. do appreciate the level of thought yeah. you went into the email. God knows I have my own conspiracy theories about stuff like that. So thank you very much. I had a, <laughs> had a lot of fun listening to that email. Thank you so much. Um, here is a letter from uh, just R. The letter R. Ooh, R. suspenseful. Um, One of the men in black. Dear Mr. and Mr. Critically Acclaimed, uh, thank you so much for all you do to share your love of film with us. I almost never agree with your perspective. (laughs) 
But I love hearing it and mentally debating you all the same. Fair well, enough. Thank you for listening. Uh, my question surrounds comedy movies. I love laughing. Makes sense. I'm mm-hmm. human. And I appreciate when I can go to the theater and bust a gut. I'm also a person of faith with a certain set of values. Okay. I'm uncomfortable with excessive foul language, sexual humor, and the like. It just doesn't sit well with me. Okay. Everybody has their taste. Uh, this leaves me with very few options to go to the movies for a laugh. I know I'm in a minority, and I don't expect Hollywood to cater to my specific tastes, but how does every new comedy released have to be raunchy or stupid? Is there a place for witty yet semi-appropriate comedy in 2020? Uh Thanks for your time and keep up the good work, R. Um, That's a really, really fair critique. Yeah. Um, something I noticed when I took my son, who at the time was only three and a half, to see The Secret Life of Pets 2 mm. was how it stood so starkly in contrast in tone to some of the TV he watched at home. Yeah. Because he was three and a half. We, you know, we let him watch toddler TV, which is very simple stuff. This thing is green. We're going to count three of mm-hmm. them. And it's often very calming. It's, yeah, it's, it's very yeah. sort of sort of gentle. And here I am taking him to on the big screen to see a PG-rated animal animated film. Oh, you monster. Pay attention to that, that particular movie. And indeed, you'll start seeing this in all kids' movies. How many of the jokes in that film were based very explicitly on being cruel or humiliating another character. Yeah. Like laughing at a character because they behaved strangely or because they were afraid. And I even using like mean language to humiliate someone. In that movie in particular, mm. and I got some flack for writing this in a review, but like mm. I just feel like the uh, that movie's attitude towards the protagonist is mm. you're different. You should change and I'm going to neg you until you do. Well, and that's, that's not really healthy or that's even not that funny. Just, that's not just the protagonist. All of the characters oh, are really mean to each other in that movie. Fair enough. I just feel like it's um, particularly pervasive in that one film. Yeah, I yeah. Um, but yeah, fair enough. But I I, you're right. When you go into a, a film, there, I guess, must be a pressure to make it f- like screen, like film appropriate. Yeah. Which means they're going to have to push the envelope a little bit, give themselves a little bit of edge. A lot more so, yeah. energy. Get, get, get your money's worth. Yeah. Uh, so there's going to be, yeah, like crass humor, fart humor, cusses, sex, sexual innuendo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think those things can be funny. I think they frequently aren't. Careful. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Should you make my chair? Uh, just a little. Just a little bit. It's uh, fine. Just shifting in my chair. So angry bit. about comedy, you're breaking things. <laughs> um, it's it's true that you don't find a lot of uh, just sort of clean, innocuous slapstick humor anymore. Or just um, slapstick yeah. or no. Like, I think there was definitely like a tone of comedy mm. that had a much more deft touch that we are missing right now. And yeah. I think you would look at something like... Like, there were different kinds of Mel Brooks movies. Like, Blazing Saddles is obviously trying to be extremely raunchy, and pushing producers is really trying to push a lot of boundaries. Uh-huh. Spaceballs is pretty tame. Spaceballs, uh... Spaceballs I mean, it, has, is, it has a few crass jokes, it has, but... It has some but sexy it's, jokes, it's, but it's mostly just dumb humor the but, whole way through. Yeah, and I well, think you can... Most hmm. people, like, there might be a few jokes that push yeah, no. the boundaries of taste for certain people in the audience, but it's pretty okay. And I feel yeah, like that's something where, like, we're all here to have a good time, right? Yeah, and that's something, yeah. an attitude I don't get from a lot of regular comedies. I'll give you that. There there are a lot of really wonderful comedy films coming out all the time, but you're right. The mainstream Hollywood fair isn't necessarily where you're going to, you're going to find those. No. Uh, even the animated films are really aggressive. Um, I'm thinking of Whit Stillman's Love and Friendship. Yeah. That movie is bloody hilarious, and it's really subdued, and it's really mannered. There's n- no sexual innuendo or violence in that because it's based on a Jane well, Austen there's novel. There's a little sexual innuendo because the whole thing is she 
he's sleeping around. But even that, I mean, it's, it's not it's explicit. All, it's yeah. all off camera. It's not yeah. really gone into a lot of detail. No, I agree. Uh, and, I think and the you indie might, community has a lot of those. The indie community dryers. has a couple. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of some other like more recent examples without having yeah. to go back to like Frank Capra. Well, I, just, um, I keep thinking yeah. of more Whit Stillman, but it, oh well, yeah, he's, he's well, kind of the king of this right hmm. now. Um, but that, I, I, I saw um, an, an upcoming film today, which is actually really quite funny and. Yeah, it doesn't have any sexual innuendo. It's actually a really sweet romance, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also like based on something older. It's yeah, again, that's it was. Uh, uh, I was I was walking. I was in a bookstore with my wife yesterday, mm-hmm. and um, she found a PG Woodhouse book she'd never read. Oh, PG Woodhouse is wonderful. Yeah, and that's another one where you look at like Jeeves and Worcester, where it's all comedy of manners, it's all mm-hmm. you know dialogue humor, and mm-hmm. oh, this rich man is very silly. And yeah. that's something that's in- aggressively tame, but also very funny. Like mm-hmm. the comedy is pushing. Every second in something like that. Yeah. Mm. Crass comedy can be great. Absolutely. Crass comedy is also a, uh, something that people who aren't funny can lean on mm. to get a reaction. And sometimes getting a reaction is all people can help for. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you get a reaction, we won. Mm. No, you want an mm. appreciated reaction. Yeah. You uh, want a reaction where people are going, I'm glad you said that. That's funny, and I'm going to take that with me. Mm. Not, he farted. Ha! <laughs> Like that's not really that's not and really great humor. I mean, it can this, be, but it's not necessary. I I, I I agree with you. I think crass humor uh, can be wielded to great effects. Um, I'm one of the freaky weirdos out there who actually laughed at movie forty three. Yeah. Um, oh, here's a, here's a great but, comedy. You, uh, you missed it, but here's one that has a really great tone throughout. It's a kids movie, but it's very funny. Mm. Uh, Dora and the Lost City of Gold. Oh, okay, yeah, I did, did, didn't see it. So. Hearts in the right place. Mm. Not there's like a couple of like. Kinda, I have to poop in the jungle jokes, but nothing mm. too, nothing really gross. Yeah, like it's that's something that I think everyone can enjoy it, mm. and it's actually pretty witty, and I think adults yeah. no. will appreciate it as much as anybody. Um, R, who uh, I'd love, I'd be interested to know what comedies you do enjoy, so yeah. maybe we can recommend something like kind of adjacent to that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say that there's some kind of deep appreciation to a fart joke that you're missing because that's actually something very basic about that and mm-hmm. I'm I'm not going to force it's like trying to convince your grandma that South Park is funny yeah, oh yeah it's, and it's also there's yeah. also this this thing where people are like oh you don't find that funny well you're just a prude or you have too high standards and oh. it's like at some point film criticism does encounter however much respect you look at the form and function of something taste matters there are certain things taste in your own experiences in my own experience there are certain things that i don't find particularly funny Mm -hmm. and i will tell you what's in there that i personally didn't find funny and i'm not saying that necessarily so that you will go yeah Uh you're right about everything and we should make you president i want you to know that like this is in here if it matters to you and if it doesn't matter to you you'll probably find it funnier than i did (laughs) so like like fat jokes Mm. Generally speaking, it's really lazy, shitty humor. Mm. It's just that person's fa- like. There's a there's a gag in that in the new Black Widow trailer. Where, like you got fat, and everyone's mm. like, ha ha ha. What's that funny? Mm. He, he he grew. He he didn't keep up with his fitness regimen. Well, Who I, gives a shit? I, th- I think like the, like the there's a, a fat Thor joke yeah. in uh, in the last Avengers movie, and I think the gag is that this is Thor, the god of thunder, going to pot. It's not just some regular guy going to pot. So there's a little bit of well, and, juxtaposition in, in, in well, that. And, and context in matters. And, in that one, and being then, fat doesn't hinder him exactly. in any way. And, he's and, still and, bad In fact, he doesn't become thin again during the course of that movie, but he's still in the bat- last fight, fighting as capably as ever. Yeah, so. yeah. That one, contextually, I don't think that one's as yeah. bad as some others. So again, it's a matter so, of taste, and you're allowed to have your matter of taste. I appreciate that you don't expect every movie to change, but it is perfectly reasonable to say there 
there are movies you wish you could see. There are TV shows that I think mm-hmm. uh, are are on that wittier end of the spectrum where they're not quite as crass or profane. Yeah, they might be more yeah, idea centric. Um, are that might be. Um, where you need to go for the kind of humor that you like is television. Well, especially if it's contemporary. Yeah, te- on the other contemporary, hand, contemporary like network TV. On the other hand, there are of course, and I, I I don't know how well versed you are in film history. I don't know how old you are, how many like movies mm. you've watched from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. There's a lot of movies from those periods as well left to be explored by even someone who's reasonably well versed. Mm. That might actually fit and be a little bit more wholesome for you, but also be very witty and yeah. sharp. And uh, and who knows? Maybe in your explana- ex- explanation, exploration of these comedies, you'll find something that you wouldn't expect to be your taste to be your taste. Yeah. Um, my dad has similar attitudes to to yours, uh, writer. Um, he he's not really big on sort of fart jokes and really crass humor. He, mm. he he'll tell a dirty joke, but that's not the type of movie he wants to go see. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and yet, A Fish Called Wanda, a gloriously <laughs> crass movie, is one of his favorites. So, um, you never know Sometimes. when one, one, one will hit. Yeah. Kevin Klein gives a brilliant performance, and every third word he says is the F word in that movie. Yeah. But that one's a little word. It doesn't feel terribly malevolent. Yeah. Tone is something that can be really, really hard to strike. Like, there's really... Movie... They murder dogs in that movie. I know, <laughs> and yet somehow it feels light. Here's an example of a movie that is dark in some respects, but I actually found it very light uh-huh. and very enjoyable, and I'm very curious, Art, if you saw it and if you felt the same way. Game Night. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. Game Night is a really, really great movie. It came out like a year, year and a half ago, and it is about a group of re- hyper-competitive people who meet every week or month for a game night, and then one night, uh, the, the guy who runs it, his older brother, comes in and says, I've done one of those cool role-playing things where I'm going to be kidnapped, and, and you have to, run to find around, me. run around town and find clues. It's a, it's a whole citywide yeah. game. Yeah. But the gag is, he's actually being kidnapped, and they don't know, so they end up embroiled in actual criminality, and they're totally right. ill-equipped for it, and they don't even know and, it, it takes until them, it's too yeah, late. It takes them a really long time to figure out that it's actual crime. It's, yeah. There's some dark stuff in there, there's some mm. like kind of creepy humor about the violence, but everyone is a Approaching it in exactly the right mm. attitude. Rachel McAdams is a gem in that movie. She's Brilliant so in funny. that movie. Everyone is really mm. good in that movie. It's shot kind of dark, and there's a mm. few scenes that are kind of dark, but the tone mm. is always just on that end of light. It's kind of like Clue, mm. where people are dying, but it's, but still, it's still really the tone kind of is still fun. and funny. Yeah. If you can handle Clue, oh no, he died. You- <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> If you can handle Clue, Game Night is a good one. Um, If Clue is still a little too dark for you, totally get it. I recommend moving backwards in time or maybe scoping out some of the uh, more critically acclaimed like TV shows that are on right now. I'm not the biggest expert in contemporary TV because we watch so much old stuff, but I do know there's some good stuff out there. Uh, Here's a letter from Pedro. Hello, Pedro. Hi. Uh, Hey, Bibbs and Whitney. Hope you're doing great. Uh, I'm Pedro. I live in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Ooh. Hello to Sao Paulo. Hello. Um, After listening to a few recent episodes, I have a few random thoughts to share with you. I'll try to keep them short. A. I see everything. everyone sending their recommendations of the decade. I will give mine, but I will keep them at five films, and they are all Brazilian. Cool. That's great. So, number five, Invisible Life. Okay. uh, Which I I started to watch, and I didn't finish it. So, um, a great melodrama about the role of women in a misogynistic society. Number four, My Own Private Hell. A melancholic fairy tale about a trans woman struggling to keep her restaurant open. Ooh, I'm writing that Uh, down. That sounds good. uh, Three, Neighboring Sounds. A meditation on the conservative mindset that has gained power recently, but it was released in 2013. Wow. Okay. Yeah. um, Number two, Friendly Beast, a fucked up horror movie directed by the great Gabriela Amaral about abu- an abusive relationship. Okay. And number one, 
Bakurao, a, a Gorian fun response to colonialism. Awesome. I've heard of uh, Bakurao. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I think I've only heard of like two you know? of those. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, Definitely going to check out my own private hell. That sounds really good. Oh, yeah. So gr- Brazilian cinema. Keep it coming. That's Thank great. You. I've seen yeah. very few Brazilian films. Uh, my, my, uh, my wife is learning Portuguese. Uh, right oh, cool. now, because yeah. that's her family is uh, descends from Portuguese and, and actually Brazil, and uh, Portugal and Brazil, and uh, so we were going to try to track down Portuguese language films, and they're actually kind of they're not a lot on streaming over here. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to like delve in a little bit further. So these are some good recommendations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, B, you mentioned Stuart Gordon's Lovecraft adaptations recently. I wanted to share one of my favorites, which is Castle Freak. There you go. It's Actually, a man, a man going crazy, time. but it's also about the impact it has on his family. It has a lot of twists and turns, and I love it. I haven't seen Castle Freak, but I've read The Outsider, the story that it's based on. Oh, it's From what of... I understand, it's totally different. Oh, yeah. The uh, Outsider is one of the great horror stories. It Just is period. so good. It's efficient. It doesn't go where you expect it to, or at least it, maybe you've seen stuff that ripped it off. Maybe yeah. it does now. But, um, yeah, it's one of Lovecraft's masterpieces. It's really, really great. Mm. Um, I saw the first part of Castle Freak, but I saw it on a really shitty VHS, so I I never finished oh, okay. it, so I, I hear it's got it's got or it's getting like a new high profile like DVD release. I need to like check that Arrow out. Arrow or Shot Factory or Vinegar Syndrome, one of those. One of those. Yeah. And uh, C. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bibbs mentioned he didn't like Guy Ritchie's King Arthur because it's too many montages, and I feel absolutely the same way about Rocky Four. <laughs> Yeah. My God, this movie is made up of only montages. So here's a question. What are some of your favorite and least favorite movie montages? Thanks for the content. Oh. I really love you guys. Best wishes from your friend Pedro. That's mm. that's that's a hell of a question, and it's not something they uh John Stewart talked about he he hosted the Oscars a couple of times. Uh huh. And he talked about some of the stuff that they were gonna do and they didn't, and one was gonna be a montage tribute to the movie montage. Mm. <laughs> Here are our favorite montages. <laughs> montage, montage. Probably a little too, probably a little too hip little for the too room. Meta, yeah, but yeah. Um, it was a funny idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I gotta say, this is one that's really like, again, it's really on the nose. Mm-hmm. And we were just talking about it. It's so probably why it's still in my head. But uh, Team America has a song called Montage about the power of a movie <laughs> which, montage. Which is actually from South Park. True, true, uh, but they use it in Team America, which if, is great. If it was written for Team America, that thing would have been up for an Academy Award. Oh my god, so yes. Brilliant. It's hilarious. Yeah. It's a hilarious bit. Um, I'm trying to think. Most movie montage... If you're, okay, if, you're, if, if anyone's listening and doesn't know what a montage is. Um, well, montage... It is a French word. It's a French word, mm-hmm. and strictly speaking, it kind of just means editing, but the way we use it now um, is when we edit scenes and moments together to condense time. Mm-hmm. So, for example, a Rocky training montage, you can kind of picture it in your head. Okay, now it's now we're going to really train Rock. Boom! Mm-hmm. And then the music starts playing, and then we see him, like, trying to run somewhere, but it's like he's out of shape right now, and he's not doing so great, and he's doing push-ups, and he's not doing so great. And then we cut to, he's better at all of those things. <laughs> and at the end of the song, he's really good at all mm-hmm. of those things. That's condensing you're, days, you're, weeks, if not months of time. You're... you're Keeping the energy up with a good music choice, uh-huh. you're keeping the energy up with fast editing, and mm-hmm. yet you're covering over what is ostensibly the most boring part of the story, Yeah, which is just this long training period of, of your life where you're just training for something. The magic of cinema, that mm. kind of doesn't exist in other forms. <laughs> you might be able to do it in like a comic book, because, but it's really kind of hard to do a montage in a novel. Well, because uh, montages deal with time, and you just said yeah. it's about compressing time, and cinema is one of the only art forms that deals expressly with time. Um 
Yeah, uh, Rocky Four, insufferable. Favorite montages? Uh, Sam Raimi does them. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, yes. <laughs> Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi found this. If you look at, especially uh, the originally uh, Evil Dead Two. Well, I was going to say Army of Darkness. Well, but, Army of yeah. Darkness perfected it, but you mm. go back to Evil Dead Two, mm. where it's Bruce Campbell and he's basically gearing up to fight the demon in the basement, mm. and they go to the work shed and they make for him a chainsaw attachment to his now stump of an arm because he's had a horrible evening. Yeah. And, <laughs> and what they do is they. Do the montage, and the montage is a collection of the most dramatic action mm. with a zoom. Every oh. single one is okay. I'm going to crank this thing it's, tighter. It's very like kung fu cinema. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, yeah. And you can see that like, like one Shu- one crank or one small movement, and Sam Raimi will very quickly zoom in onto the center of the image, and he'll do that maybe like six, seven, ten times in a mm. row. It really makes and it really dynamic. And sh- it, it's, it's awesome. Really dynamic. And at the end of it, so when he finally has the the chainsaw attachment, and you see that he's essentially turned into a superhero. Yeah, that's great. And he you know revs up the chainsaw on a hook on his chest in Evil Dead Two. Yeah, it, it's yeah this really kind of exhilarating action moment in this otherwise horror slash comedy movie. But the problem is it's, that's actually an easy thing to screw up. And so when mm-hmm. it comes with like a bad montage, I'm going to go with uh, Joel Schumacher's various suiting up Batman montages. Oh, where they, he does the same thing with like bits of the Batman suit. Yeah, he does it with the bits of the Batman suit. And like for initially, it's like he puts on the glove. Ha! Zoom in on the glove. Yeah, yeah. he puts on the cape. Ha! On the cape. But yeah. then he'll fetishize something right in the middle of it. So it, at first, we think we're he's, seeing something. He's kind of satirizing the montage in the like middle of it. Yeah. I feel like he's satirizing it, but I also think he's changing it without like us being on board with it because at first, it's very practical. A glove. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. A belt. Okay, cool. Butt cheeks! Well, and he'll just throw them in, and it's just like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't well, realize no, he, you were getting off to this, Joel. He, he didn't. Well, first of all, he didn't just throw that in. The butt cheeks in Batman Forever, it was like, I think, the second or third suit-up montage. Because mm. he had one at the beginning where he's just putting on the, the helmet, putting on the gloves, putting on the boots. And we're, we're getting to know, okay, this is the Batman suit. This is a very important part of this. Right. In fact, you look at Joel Schumacher's movies, he is actually expressly stating, explicitly... That the suit is the most important part of being Batman. Right. Not in a philosophical sense, but for Batman. Batman wouldn't be Batman if he didn't get to wear the suit. So the, and, you know, there's all many characters, like the, the Nicole Kidman character in that movie, Dr. Chase Meridian, that was her name. Uh, she, <laughs> and what uh, a grand pursuit you must be. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid name. Uh, Dr. Chase Meridian uh, f- also fetishizes the bat suit. And, mm. you know, Joel Schumacher is a very visual storyteller. He's very fetishistic, very fetishistic about the suit up until that point anyway. So by the time we get to the second suit-up montage and we get the, the boots and we see the butt, it's like the audience... We're in on the joke at that point. I know. I it's just, not until Batman and Robin. It was tacky when he redid it in Batman and Robin because he started with it. There you go. Okay. So like that's probably what I'm thinking. Yeah, I th- I, I, like the first shot's like glove, butt, crotch, glove, butt, crotch. Like we're really <laughs> we're really like butt and crotch fixated at that point. And yeah. and yeah, the, at that point it becomes kind of silly. There are other montages that have been used in different ways. Perhaps mm-hmm. the most famous movie montage ever, whether or not you've actually seen it, is Battleship Potemkin. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, Bowser Potemkin, you know, was about a, a uh, an, uh, an uprising that went very bad, and a lot of it took place on the steps 
this mm-hmm. big long staircase, and um, we do intercuts of violence, and then of course there's a baby carriage uh-huh. that rolls down, and as we keep cutting back to that baby carriage, we see just how much chaos and horror is taking place in such a tiny period of time. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the baby carriage is an element of suspense in and of itself. Yeah, so that's a really great one. Um, the baptism ending in The Godfather. Uh, one of the great movie montages. Yeah, I guess. So, yeah. Because um, in addition to we're seeing... Well, it's, that's concurrent chronology. I don't think that's a... You don't think so? Slightly you different think, from a montage. Okay, I agree. Oh, that's a different way of using it. But yeah, right. I, I, can, I, can, I can veto that. That's right. that's reasonably fair. Um, I had another one. Um, hold on. I'm trying to think. <laughs> uh, um, well, I mean... The, the, oh, the, up. The, up. Up. The beginning of Up. Oh, there you go. Whole the life. The, the, the whole... The, the first... Like the prologue, the, 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 of mon- up the is monta- entire life. The montage of Up is the best movie. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, rest, really the rest of Up, I would argue, but the yeah, the the, the montage of Up is just so heartbreaking yeah. unto itself. Oh, uh, and the, it's just a montage. Uh, the the opening of Train Spotting. Oh, there you go. They're not compressing time a lot per se, but we're getting a lot of information about a lot mm. of characters in a very non like mm. in a very nonlinear way. Yeah, um, that's a really great one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, can you think of any other bad ones? It's hard to pick a bad montage because it's actually kind of hard to screw up a montage. <laughs> you get the right music mm-hmm. and you're conveying the right information. Yeah, it's like the Karate Kid. You're the best around. Doing the, it's fine. Getting better and better. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of like the, the, tournament. The, the cliche of, of the sports movie montage. It's probably the Karate Kid more than anything. I think Karate Kid cemented it. I think Rocky yeah. started From the director it, or, of Rocky, too. Oh, well, um, yeah. John G. Avildsen is definitely well, largely responsible for the use of the montage as we typically have it in Hollywood. To, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting. He's not considered like one of the great filmmakers, but he did kind he, he of created, def- yeah, created a, like a genre and a, yeah, some the sports movie that, genre yeah. as we know of. It's kind of John G. Av- I mean, yeah, Stallone wrote it, but mm-hmm. but Avildsen is the one who like put it together and made it sing that first time, and then again with Karate Kid. Yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, I hope that helps. Uh, montage is a really interesting conversation to have. It's kind of hard to do without visual cues in some respects, just because mm-hmm. it's such a uniquely visual thing yeah but um i'm glad someone brought it up because it's really cool what do we got next uh here is a letter from austin Hello. A, a person named Austin, not from the city of Austin. Oh, well, that could uh, be as well. I don't I suppose, know. Yeah, maybe you're from Austin. Uh, good morning, William Bibbs, Bibiani, and Whitney Rockmeister, Sex Beast McCool, Seibel. <laughs> I just wanted to throw some praise your way and tell you how much your podcasts, all of them, so very, very men of, many of them, mean to me. The first thing I do every morning is refresh my podcast feed in hopes of a new quality content to get me through my day. Oh, my God. That is oh, so flattering. Thank you so thank much. You. I don't always agree with your opinions. Thank you. <laughs> that's um, fair. That's no, fair expected. I yeah, yeah um, I don't, I don't But I always that. look forward to hearing your thoughts on every movie or topic because I respect your opinion so very much. I wouldn't have it any other way. You two are by far my favorite critics. Oh, wow. Oh, this is just Oh, if it's just effusive yeah. praise, we, we're yeah, I done. Say, I, ju- I just want to let you know that uh, one of my favorite parts of your podcast, uh, Nay the World, is when Bibbs name drops a random actor, the more obscure the better, and, the com- <laughs> and a complete and utter joy spews forth from Whitney's mouth in the form of an uncontrollable, Yay! <laughs> Be more joy than you can possibly imagine. You're the best. Keep it up. Love Austin. Oh well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the more movies you watch, mm. the more people you start to recognize, and then the older you get, yeah. the people you recognize and have been recognizing for thirty years start becoming more obscure. <laughs> and then other people who are like younger than you don't know them as intimately as uh-huh. you do. And so when you bring up someone like Una O'Connor, and you're everyone around you is like, yeah, but, but then O'Connor. you realize everyone around you is like three people, and everyone else is like, who? Who's Una O'Connor? Una, you know Una O'Connor. She's an universal monster. She's the best part of Bride of Frankenstein and Invisible Man. Bride of Frankenstein, you're saying? She's in Bride of Frankenstein. No, I was, make, I was making fun of people who hadn't seen it. Oh, yeah. Frankenstein uh, didn't have a bride. No, no I, I know this. All right. 
I'm saying other people might if they were like young and like don't know the old movies. Oh, okay. It always amazes me like when I watch like um, an episode of the movie trivia Schmodown, for example, the trivia mm. show you and I are both in. By the way, you have an uh, upcoming teams match with Alonzo Duralde, and I'm very do, excited about. I do. Um, congratulations! I can't wait. Mm, um, well, I can't. Can't. Uh, can't comment can't, on. Can't it. comment on it yet, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, very cool. It's um, up. Yeah. Uh, I think you've had a run of bad luck, and I hope this is your year. Oh, fingers crossed. But uh, it always amazes me when I'll see people who, uh, like, know tons of stuff about movies. And, like, I'm actually, like, impressed at the level of detail they know about movies. And then they'll ask, like, a question about a really famous old, old movie. Uh-huh. And they're like, what? I've never heard of that movie. Yeah, yeah and I'll, like, I'll be watching them, like, how do you, like... Get a miracle on 34th Street question wrong. Like that's a, that's a that's established, right? Isn't that like in the pop culture canon? Yeah. And like, I realize that not everyone has as much. You know, the people are younger. There was much time to catch up on it. I'm not trying to be judgy. I just feel like we should be doing a better job of being like well versed, well, especially well, well when you're, well, especially yeah. when your job is movie trivia, or at least one of them. Mm. Feels like that's a thing, yeah, yeah. but anyway. So I feel like well, it, classics. We we should be like yeah. trying to make sure people are more aware of people like Uno O'Connor or anyone really yeah. from, that, from that era. So yeah. well, I, I'll, I'm going to continue that habit because it's just a habit of mine. So yeah. I'll, 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 hope you hope you get a yay out of me pretty yeah. soon. Uh, yeah. To, to but to to address what you were just saying, um, I feel like one of the reasons I had a run of bad luck on on the yeah. showdown and uh, have lost s- several matches actually was because. They're asking me questions about films that, to a certain crowd, are established classics, yeah. but weren't films I grew up with personally. Yeah. That's just because I grew up with a weird set of films. I didn't grow up watching the same movies my friends were watching. Yeah, well, everyone so, else was watching Die Hard. You were watching... I was watching, like, like John Candy and Delirious. Like, that's the, yeah. kind of thing, the kind of thing I was renting multiple times for my local video And it's not that you've seen those movies. You just haven't memorized them in detail me- yeah. the way other well, people like, expect you And to. again, I, I saw Die Hard, but I was I was 30 by the oh. time I saw Die Hard. I didn't grow up with Die Hard. Yeah, I absorbed was, it into your DNA. things like, like a Predator or Beverly Hills Cop or Lethal Weapon, all these like action bro-heavy action movies just weren't movies I was watching. Yeah. So yeah, they're not part of my DNA and they're making these sort of really obscure references to these movies, expecting that that's just something I should naturally know. But I think that makes I don't more, know. So. I think that makes you more dangerous than people appreciate because mm. there's going to be other elements of film trivia, especially now that they've added all these different categories. They've added a ton of different categories of yeah, movie yeah. trivia, might I think there's going to be so many of those that you are just already prepared for, and other people are going to have to start studying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because you, just, you, you studied different things, yeah, and yeah. now there's going to be more of those mm-hmm. uh, options available in yeah, terms yeah. of categories. So I think it's going to be – I'm really looking forward to the season of the Schmodown, largely because of those new categories. I think they're going to be a big equalizer. Yeah, fingers crossed. All right. Um, yeah. Let's have time for one more. All right, one more. Here's a letter from Lando. Hello, Lando. Hi, Lando. Um, hello, friends. Uh, Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby. Ah! On paper, seems like a terrible idea. <laughs> but in execution, I think it was pretty solid. and <laughs> gave us arguably one of DiCaprio's best performances. Um, here's my argument about Leonardo DiCaprio. I recently, for the first time, got to see Critters 3, a film Leonardo DiCaprio made when he was maybe 12 or 13 years old. Definitely was, just a teenager. He was young. Yeah. A kid. He was a kid. Seeing his performance in that movie. Now he's pretty good in that movie. He's not. A, he's, fine. Not, he's, he's a not, good kid actor. He's engaged. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's he's actually he's giving a, a character. Engaged he's doing with, the yeah, work. He has he has a character. He has uh, an yeah. attitude. He's actually has a lot of screen presence. It was like one or there's two a, years before he did Gilbert Grape and proved yeah, so that he could do even better. There's but yeah. there's um there's a reason that kid was selected and to be in other things and then ended up being a big star. Yeah. 
it also kind of ruined Leonardo DiCaprio's performances for me mm-hmm. because I learned watch after having absorbed many many Leonardo DiCaprio performances where he does wild accents and he's acting in different time frames and is trying different daring new things. He does all of those things. All of his mannerisms, all of his vocal inflections. Those very all distinct his, looks. You know that look from like Inception where he's like pursing his lips? And yeah, he's like, kind of pursing his lips he's, and he, furling his brow. He's been doing that since 12. He, he, his style has not changed one whit since really he was 12 fun. years old. And it works. He still, he still does gives good performances, but he's just... He's, he's doing the same to, shtick every single time. But it's, it, it, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing. I am admitting that it works. I, I love... Everything about Martin Scorsese is the aviator, except for him. <laughs> he's, listen, he's, he's a little miscast. Yeah. I actually think he does fine in that movie. He avails himself well, but I think yeah. they, the film would have been a, a, just an undeniable classic had they had a different I think, actor I, I, I keep imagining if Ed Norton had played that role, how good that movie would have been. Oh, golly, I yes. think maybe it would have been a little bit more apt for it. But mm. I do think all his other work with Scorsese has been mm. excellent. Yeah. Anyway, uh, what was the question? Uh, we haven't gotten to it yet. Oh, so. okay. We're talking about Greg Gatsby. See, the right. movie was also not a critical smash. It was a sleeper at the box office. It made, it made me wonder why we didn't get a series of style directors doing their takes on classic works of literature. I think this is an untapped market and could prove to be quite successful in not only expanding these types of directors' careers, but also introducing old works to younger audiences. Mm. With that in mind, who are some directors that are known for their style that you would get to adapt to classic works of literature, and which work would you choose for them? Please explain if you have the time. Um, Uh, He gives a few choices. Oh, great. Taika Waititi should do Don Quixote. Ooh, that's a good idea. (laughs) I like that. Um, Christopher Nolan should do 1984. Natch. Yeah, that one writes itself, Um, yeah. I, I would say Gilliam, but he already kind of did that with Brazil. Um, Alfonso Cuarón should do the Odyssey. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. That'd be a big that'd be, Odyssey. Yeah, yeah, that'd be fun. And Robert Eggers should do Frankenstein. Robert Eggers is actually doing Nosferatu, so he's kind of Fair doing enough, yeah, he's Dracula. Kind of, kind of doing a Dracula. I, uh, Guillermo del Toro has wanted to do Frankenstein. I think he'd be great at it. Mm. Um, that's well, the, it, yeah. Here's the thing, um, Baz Luhrmann. He does big, glitzy, sort of noisy pieces of art, and. Uh, I would call them junk. I'm actually not a big Baz Luhrmann fan. I, I, uh, when I he's great, he's great. When he's bad, he's junk. I'll grant yeah, you that. Yeah. Um, even when I was the right age to appreciate Romeo plus Juliet, and it did make me cry at the time, I did recognize that this is just insanity, guy. Well, and that was actually a good point to bring up because in the late 90s, early 2000s, we actually had, and all of a sudden, mm-hmm. a wave of classic literature adaptations that were filtered through modern contemporary culture. Clueless was just a remake of, uh, or an adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma, mm-hmm. for example. Ten Things I Hate About You was uh, The Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, that movie, Oh, directed by Tim Blake Nelson, which was the teen version of Othello. Yeah, yeah. Um, and indeed, the 90s, we had multiple waves of different uh, literature adaptations. We had a big, long wave of Jane Austen movies, most of which were really good. Mm-hmm. And a big, long wave of handsome Shakespeare adaptations, most of which are pretty good. Mm-hmm. Some of them are classics. Um, and some of the Jane Austen movies as well. So I think we're a little overdue. I think we start getting them every once in a while, but they don't quite take hold. I think we're. I think people are talking much. But I want to look it up. See, what Little Women some, made money. Little Women, Little Women was doing yeah, rather well. Little and Women, of course and, yeah, and Little Women is, is is a big Oscar hit. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people are interested in it because it's an Oscar hit. Uh, it's a really great adaptation. Yeah, I'm trying to see um, how much money it's actually made. It's doing uh, well. Okay. I've only compared. I can only compare it to one other movie because actually I haven't read the, the, the book. Well, um, fair enough. But uh, but even so, it mm-hmm. does new things. It is a modern adaptation, mm-hmm. even though it takes place uh, in the I mean, past. Has, and I think it's only. Uh, yeah, it cost forty million dollars. 
It's mm-hmm. already made 164. All right, so that's yeah, that's four times its budget. That's a really uh, good return on investment. But yeah, for your, a, your point about yeah. the 90s, it was happening a lot because there was mm-hmm. Romeo plus Juliet. Quaron did a, a kind of awful Great Expectations film. Uh, he also did a Great Little Princess. Oh, that's true, Little Princess. Uh, not as well known a piece of literature, but yeah, there was. Yeah. Um, Heck, even the Muppets did cla- two pieces of classic lit. Um, they did, right? It was, yeah, good, um, it was a good time for it. I think it's time for, for revitalization. And there's a lot of people mm-hmm. I would like to see. Some of them are in the works. Uh, Zack Snyder has been trying to make a movie of the Fountainhead, which... Oh, boy, golly! Right? <laughs> I, right? That sounds like the worst thing I, ever. And yet and you I, really want to see it, don't you? to see that thing. Yeah! Zack Snyder's The Fountainhead? Oh, my God. Doesn't that sound like the most amazing slash worst thing you've ever seen in your life? Welcome to the fist of idiocy. Um, (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Fist of idiocy. Oh, my God. Yeah, and there's... Oh, golly. Let's see. I would like to see some people, like, tackle, like, some classic horror lit. I think there might be, like... um, we might see some more Lovecraft adaptations. Other people see yeah, color, how color, how of color space, space did. did okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like I, I'm I not look, sure like financially, but it got made and the, the horror the horror community certainly took a those. lot of influential movies aren't necessarily the hit films. They inspire the hit films. Mm. Like um, it looks something like Blade Runner and how it really changed the way we visualized the future in movies, even though it wasn't a hit. Yeah. But the people who made movies saw what it was doing, thought yeah. it was really interesting. All the people who worked on it went on to other movies. I'm so very, yeah. I was just thinking about this the other day when I was thinking about all the movies that are trying to tell genre stories from different perspectives and they're not necessarily hits. Mm. So like, not Black Panther, which was a huge hit. Not Captain Marvel, which was a huge hit. But something like uh, the new Ghostbusters, mm. the the Paul Feig version. Well, which, I, but now you're comparing Ghostbusters to classic literature. No, I'm not comparing Ghostbusters to classic literature. I'm talking mm. about movies that are influential. All right. I'm talking about like I'm curious because that's a movie that I think that a lot of things that people really responded to, even if it didn't necessarily click with the wider audience. I'm curious what filmmakers are going to like grow up with that movie, seeing the good in that movie, and how that is going to spiral out the way something like Blade Runner did, or the way something oh, like maybe so. you know, The Monster Squad did, yeah, or something well, like that. I'm curious how that's going to evolve, because I think whether or not those movies are huge successes, they're going to reach gonna, some we're gonna people, how, and they're, yeah, we're they're going to make an impact, I think, because the arts there, are different. There is some kind of influence. But I'm trying to think things. of like what filmmakers I would like um, to see do what lit. Well, here's... Uh, Old, oldest, greatest, you know, greatest story ever told piece of literature. Uh, the Old Testament uh, has been oh, adapted yeah. twice by Darren Aronofsky. Uh, <laughs> he did a Noah movie about Noah's Ark, and he did a uh, Mother, which is pretty much just an adaptation of actually the whole Bible. It's the Old and New Testaments. Uh, and he brings his weird sort of freaky college student art house sensibility to those. So, yeah. and they're fascinating. I love both of those movies. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of like. Not pop specific, literature, but hot, no, cl- like, the classic lit, classic like lit, like, yeah. it, like can, Gatsby was like the twenties, but it's still canonized. I think yeah, it is yeah. still like considered a truly great work of classic literature. And I'm just trying to think of like, I would love to see. Here, here's what I've always wanted to see, yeah. and you, you tune in any any day of the week, and you'll hear me slamming Disney as a company. Just I think they're just aggressive and awful as as in terms of a business. Uh, but they also have one of the most powerful uh, studio animation studios in the world, right? Mm-hmm. They can animate whatever they want. They stick with. They tend to stick with what's safe. They sort of fell back onto this fairy tale thing. And, you know, the recent most recent film was Frozen Two. Yeah. Um, maybe if they turned their sights on something a little bit more classy, mm-hmm. and they did a straight adaptation, not the Disney version of a fairy tale, right? 
but a straight adaptation of classic lit. Let's say they do a Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm. Can you picture how awesome that thing would look? Yeah, I actually can. And like if they did traditional cell animation with their like classic 1950s hand-painted style with you know the the budget and the time it would take to make something that spectacular and then mix it with modern CG, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That would be a great just stick with the script. <laughs> Shakespeare wrote it already for you. Yeah. Make you know, shoot the whole script if you want. Make it a two and a half hour animated epic. That would be a great piece, great piece of work. I'm imagining right now, and I, I realize I don't put it in my head mm-hmm. because uh, Robert Eggers is doing Nosferatu. What Robert Eggers is crime and punishment because that story is so Ooh. internal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he or could just, actually or just really, any Dostoevsky really, really yeah. any Dostoevsky. But I'm picturing crime and punishment because I don't think it's ever really been done well on film. Mm. Um, that's something like that. I would love to see a good respectful, like, you can play with it, but, like, a good straight adaptation of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm. Um, maybe get, like, a good horror director, like, maybe Alexander Aja or something like that. Someone well, to put a little, little edge on that. Somebody, I think a good uh, Jekyll and Hyde movie would be Cronenberg. Uh, just that, well, that sort of, yeah, that sort of in, internal fear. Um, I don't think Cronenberg would be interested in doing something like mm. that. Oh, though. I would love a real good swash, swash, buckle, buckle... <laughs> Three Musketeers. It's been a while since we've had a straight, good... Well, we had um, uh, uh, Paul Anderson did one I, just I, a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, that was, that was the steampunk dumb version. <laughs> and then there was the Musketeer from Troy Hark. Uh, that wasn't Troy Hark. That was or, uh, Peter Hyams, but it looked a bit felt like him. Oh, he borrowed, that wasn't was a Troy Hark He film? borrowed Troy Hark's... Uh, it was uh, Yen Wuping, though, wasn't it? Uh, no, I don't think it was Yen Wuping. It was one of Yen Wuping's contemporaries, it, though. It was, he borrowed... Well, he, like he, a, a, a was a Chinese, it was a Chinese action, yeah. okay. uh, action choreographer. Okay. And an Americanized... Three Musketeers adaptation. Called The Musketeer. Yeah. yeah um, it's not a great movie. The action is fucking awesome. <laughs> like, the stunts are great. Like, that movie should not be completely forgotten. Okay. Just because there's so much good stuff in it. Um, but I think, you know, you look at, like... Get, like, the guy who... I'm trying to remember. Who, who did... Um, they split off the guys that did John Wick. One of them... David Leach started doing, like, Atomic Blonde and Hobbs and Shaw. Who right. stuck with John Wick? I, I don't know. The guy who stuck with John Wick, okay. get him to do Three Musketeers. <laughs> that level of action intensity, but with, mm-hmm. with sword fighting, that's great. Right. I want to see that. That's a great um, movie. Um, this is one that Roger Ebert came up with a, a long time ago, and it's one that I've carried near my heart ever since because this is such a great idea. Mm-hmm. But he suggested that Ardman, the animation studio, do PG Woodhouse. Just yeah. do, do the bl- do idea. the Blanding's Castle novels in Ardman animation style. Yeah. That is a perfect match. Yeah, I'm really surprised. Like that hasn't been floated beyond just sort of a wild hair that Roger Ebert had one day. I would like to see a woman direct the Scarlet Letter. That'd be good. Kind of anyone, yeah. but like my first like thought is Jennifer Kent because she understands okay, that, that kind, of, kind of trauma. Yeah, like yeah, come yeah. with it. Like it's all the whole movie's about like people traumatized by mm. their um, oppressive social mm. mores. And um, yeah, that'd be great. Mm. Anyway, um, if you have any ideas for that, I would love to hear from them. Be sure to tweet us at Critic Acclaim or I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. You can also email us with your own uh, questions, concerns, criticisms, uh, curiosities, random questions. That doesn't need to be about movies. Mm-hmm. We can talk about anything. Uh, and it's letters at critically acclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we will be back uh, soon with 
more episodes of various things. <laughs> we got a ton of stuff coming. The Oscars are coming up this weekend. We're going to have an episode talking about that. We're going to be reviewing Birds of Prey uh, in the next few days as well. If you've been following me on Twitter, I really love that movie. I really do think Birds <laughs> of Prey is great. I'll talk in great detail about it on the Proper Review show. But if you were on the fence, I recommend giving it a shot because it's really good. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so uh, we're on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. We have a ton of exclusive content on there. We're about to put up a new episode, I think, tomorrow of the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie. Uh, where we're reviewing a Disney Channel forgotten TV film called The Richest Cat in the World. And it's about... the ri- it, That's not slang. That's No, it's like... It's, it's, it's about a feline. It's about a cat who inherits $5 million. Yeah, yeah. Also, it can talk. <laughs> Uh, and it's live action too it's crazy uh, so we got that coming up over there in, a t- in addition to our Star Trek podcast mm-hmm. our Oscars podcast and we're gonna get commentary to- tracks and we're gonna get to cancel too soon as soon as William's done with I've had show. such a week if no. you only knew no, I'm I, working I, on it well, I'm working on it we okay. will catch up, I, we'll swear catch up. To, I swear to God we will catch up <laughs> okay I swear to God we will catch up no. I, like after tonight my, I'm free alright so anyway uh, I, I know I'm not trying I'm to sorry. embarrass you Wh- no Whitney has done the work usually mm. it's 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 usually, one or, I'm, I'm the one who has trouble catching up with William yeah yeah U- usually I have a little bit more free time it's been the other way around mm. it sucks I'm sorry we're working on it and then after that we have Hammer House of Horror which have you started that yet uh, I, I put the video in the machine fun <laughs> I actually watched got that video, going yeah. as well so tons of stuff is coming up here on the critically acclaimed network and beyond uh, we finalized some really important elements of our upcoming Star Wars podcast episode zero uh, so we should be getting that to you sooner than later I'm hoping for the middle of February Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah so thanks again e- email us tweet us Patreon us thank you everybody for listening whether or not you can contribute and uh, sincerely yours Dibson Whitney <laughs>